Okay, will you guys please take your seats so we can start. We're already uh, 15 minutes behind schedule. So just a bit of a, a fun question to get you guys thinking again. And to be part of the, to get the focus going. Okay, so I can see we're not that healthy when it comes to what we eat. Okay, so then on to our next talk of the day, models, mistakes, and mayhem. So just to introduce uh, you guys, uh, Kavi has already been, been introduced at the IFRA 17 panel. Uh, Idelia, um, she's recently returned home to South Africa after she's been working on Solvency 2 implementations in, in Europe for the last seven years. She started out in EY Zurich in 2011 and after various consulting projects with Allianz, moved over to the risk function at Allianz Group in 2014. In 2016, she took on the role of capital steering lead for the life and health business in the corporate finance function within the group. And she then set up an in, in internal and technical provisions model governance and validation framework at Allianz Group. She also worked on the rollout of um, thereafter the, the life bi biometric business risks as part of the Allianz IMAP submission. Within her last role within Allianz, she, was, um, she challenged and refined the methodology for the return on capital, uh, risk capital metrics and set up processes to embed in, it in their subsidiaries. Um, so please welcome them and I'm sure you'll enjoy their talk. Thank you, CS. Can everyone hear me? I'm actually going to stand in front here rather than behind the podium. Um, so I'm going to start the talk this afternoon uh, with a bit of a story. Um, it's the story of a company by the name of Knights Capital. Uh, some of you may have heard of it, uh, some of you may not have. Knights Capital was founded uh, in 1995 uh, by a man by the name of Ken Pasternak. Ken himself started his career uh, 15 or 16 years before that in 1979 at a company called Spear Leeds, um, which is a Jersey City company, essentially a brokerage uh, in the New York City area. He worked his way up uh, at, on, at, from the position of librarian, in fact, uh, to eventually run the trading floor uh, in 1994. Uh, so he, he was obviously a very driven person um, and, and very, 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 very good at his job. Uh, the early 90s were an extremely competitive uh, era for uh, trading, especially in uh, that part of the world. In 1995, uh, Ken met up with uh, a man by the name of Walter Riquette. Um, and together they saw a gap in the market. They realized that the old exchange model uh, that they were used to, essentially open outcry exchanges, um, extremely manual uh, way of, of trading on stock exchanges, was about to come to an end. Um, these were the days of the internet, uh, of things like the advent of Google, which started a few years ago, um, and the world was changing. Um, but it was a very, very radical thought to have at that point in time. Uh, it's, it's, it's 
may seem very obvious now that this is the way things would have gone. But at the time, um, they were really revolutionaries. They were of the order of the Ubers uh, of their time, essentially disrupting the, 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 the current way of thinking. Knight's Capital was then formed, um, and it was almost an overnight success. Um, in 1997, uh, it had grown to the largest market maker on the NASDAQ exchange. Um, and it benefited, it benefited hugely um, from directly executing trades for, for individuals. By the early 2000s, um, algorithmic trading and, uh, and electronic trading had evolved to a very sophisticated degree. And in fact, what the order of the day was, uh, was executing on large trades without tipping the market. Um, so very sophisticated algorithms were used in order to um, essentially move large positions, sell large amounts of stock without actually affecting prices, uh, prices too much. And in 2001, um, Ken was ranked uh, ninth on the Forbes financial services list. In fact, he earned almost 26 million US dollars uh, in that year. So it was a very, very successful uh, trading operation. Over a period of a decade then thereafter, uh, algorithmic trading evolved even further. Um, you, you had more and more statistics uh, feature in, in those algorithms. Um, and I think to, towards, the end of, to the, to, towards the latter end of that decade, um, a lot of machine learning um, and eventually artificial intelligence finding its way into these sorts of algorithms. So we fast forward a few years uh, to a very, very cold morning um, in 2012 uh, in New York City. Uh, it was a Wednesday, and at 9.30 a.m., the New York Stock Exchange uh, opening bell rang. Uh, so essentially trading was open. At 9.31 a.m., it was almost apparent to many traders who often traded on that exchange that something was very wrong. Something was very different. The volume of trades on the exchange was an order of magnitude uh, greater than the people were typically used to before. By 9.33, it was almost undoubtable that something was wrong. Uh, stock prices w began to move erratically, um, and uh, it had already hit uh, news companies like CNBC and, and CNN. It took another 15 minutes uh, for the problem to be identified. Essentially, it was, not, it was coming from Knight's Capital. Um, and another half an hour, essentially, for the technicians working at Knight's Capital to get into the systems and shut the, the algorithmic trading uh, systems down. Now, at the time, algorithmic trading was something that was already 10 years old. So there was a reasonable degree of uh, risk management and um, process in involved in managing these algorithmic trading uh, models. In May, uh, of 2010, there was a famous flash crash on the New York Stock Exchange, um, and it was the largest fall of the, of the Dow Jones Index uh, ever seen in, in, in history in, in one day. Um, and as a result of that event, uh, the regulators had put in place a whole lot of controls in order to prevent such an event from happening again. And mostly it had to do with limit orders. So in other words, the, the, if a stock moved uh, by a certain amount, 
the, the, in a given day, the exchange would ex essentially stop trading on that stock for a period of time in order to, to give companies uh, a, a chance to reassess. Um, but the nice capital event was different. Um, it wasn't really about moving stock prices. It was really about volumes and the volumes of trade that were, the trades that were put through. Um, an algorithmic trading algorithm like the one used in this case would have, put through, would have put through thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of trades every second. And so in the days that ensued, uh, it, it was found out essentially that uh, the Knights Cap Capital trading algorithm error um, moved 146 stocks uh, by an astronomical amount. Knights Capital ended up holding a number of these stocks uh, and had to then dispose of them at much, much lower prices. The total loss for that hour, in fact 58 minutes, amounted to 440 million US dollars. Um, almost the entire uh, cash reserves of Knights Capital at that point in time. Um, and the firm almost shut down. Uh, it, it took a Herculean effort um, of uh, capital raising in order to save the company. It's a very extreme example. I'm going to jump now just to our title, and I'll, I'll circle back to Knights Capital in, in a second. Um, so we, we've called our talk today Models, Mistakes, and Mayhem. And it really talks to three uh, objectives or three recognitions that we want to um, essentially bring to everyone's attention uh, for today. Um, the first one on models. So the world is becoming more and more dependent on models. And it may seem obvious. Uh, in fact, it, 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 it's one of those blindingly obvious observations. I look around this room, and I remember attending this conference maybe 10 years ago, and perhaps a quarter of the people sitting over here would be sitting in front of me today. Um, and that in itself is a testament of how much uh, more modeling is happening in our industry. But when you look further afield um, and you consider the trends such as data science, um, artificial intelligence, big data, um, there are more and more models being used every day for a myriad of applications um, uh, in the world. And essentially, what that points to is the fact that the risks around those models and our exposure to model risk is definitely increasing. And I would argue, in fact, it's increasing at an exponential rate, given what we're seeing um, happen in, in the world today. Second um, word is mistakes. And this really speaks to uh, our, or the need to recognize a bias that we all have when it comes to mistakes. I think uh, Catherine Schultz, who calls herself a wrongologist, you can go and look her up uh, on TED, she did a very good TED talk uh, a couple of years ago, um, speaks about mistakes in, in a very good way. Um, she, she, she draws the analogy to the coyote and the roadrunner. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember the coyote and the road, the roadrunner, but it's something I watched uh, every morning uh, growing up. And, and essentially, it was a cartoon uh, about this coyote who was constantly chasing an extremely fast roadrunner and would come up with elaborate tricks and plans to, to trap that roadrunner. And she draws the analogy between on, on, and asks the question, what does it feel like to be wrong? Um, and our answer is quite simple. It doesn't feel like anything. 
And, and the, the analogy with the, with the coyote and the roadrunner is, is, imagine that coyote running across uh, the, the, the American plains or the American desert, and he runs off a cliff. And, and there's, there's always this famous scene where, where he runs completely off the cliff and um, for a second doesn't realize that there's no ground between him and almost continues to run in thin air for a little bit. And the, the analogy is being wrong is like being that coyote before he realizes that he's in midair. Because once he realizes it, he falls. But just before he realizes it, he thinks he's, he's, everything's fine. And so really what, what, the, what the bias around mistakes speaks to is the number of biases that we all have when it comes to managing risks um, and when it comes to thinking about mistakes that, that could appear in work that we do, but, but also in work that, that, that others may do in, in the organization. Um, and I think the biases are that we tend to underestimate how likely it is uh, that um, an error or a risk event could occur, certainly when, when we're involved in the construction or the, or the work being done. Um, and, 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 I, and I also think there's a bias in, in, in that we, we, we tend to underestimate the severity of the consequences um, of what could happen if that event uh, were to happen. Um, what about business? There may even be instances where companies have failed uh, as a result of some of the models that, that, that actuaries uh, didn't imagine uh, a company uh, would go insolvent, uh, in, insolvent over. So the second thing is, is, is around recognizing this, this bias that, that, that is inherent when it comes to model, managing model risk, um, which I think myself, just like any other actuary, would have. And the third element is mayhem. So the mayhem really talks about the consequences of those mistakes. Um, and I chose the Knights Capital uh, example here, not just because it's fascinating, but because it's an extreme example. It's a very, very extreme example of what could happen when models go wrong um, and, and, and the financial consequences um, that, that, that could ensue. But it's also an extreme example because it, it draws to an extreme some of the, the, some of the trends that are happening in the world and the direction in which many models that we work with every day are, are, are moving towards. And those trends are things like automation. We, we're constantly talking about automating, taking, taking risk out the business. Clive spoke about automating standard formula calculations in order to do capital allocations. Um, the, the, the benefits around automation are massive, um, but they also come with um, additional risks. Things like speed. So, I mean, on, on regulatory models, yes, speed may matter slightly less, uh, but, but today more and more pricing models, speed is, is, is actually quite an important thing. And adjusting those models very, very quickly is also very, very critical to doing business. Complex environments. Business is becoming more and more complex. The number of parties that we deal with, um, the number of external providers, systems that we have to link to, the complexity um, of the models themselves are becoming more and more. Um, and, and the nice capital example, I think, draws this out uh, very, very nicely. And we don't just need to worry about such extreme events, though. I mean, as I mentioned, there, there, there may be much lesser consequences, but still fall, still fall into this realm of, of model risk that we should all be uh, worried about. Things like destroying trust with the regulator. 
or, or even destroying trust with the clients around, around the way a, an insurance contract is priced. And so with these realizations, uh, essentially that our exposure is increasing, and I would argue at an exponential rate, that we have a, an inherent bias, perhaps, um, to managing this, um, and that the consequences are becoming even more dire uh, and, more, and larger, uh, but, but that they're, they're actually quite a lot more difficult to, to wrap our heads around. Our talk today is really about what to do about all of this. What is the role that we need to play as actuaries in managing model risk? And what is the role that, that the profession itself uh, needs to play? And I recognize um, these days actuaries play many roles in business. And I'll draw two of them out because they, they, they're probably relevant to most, uh, to most people uh, in the room today. Um, and the one is, is obviously the role of, of the model owner, the valuator, the first line actuary, um, if you like, who owns the model, who builds it, uh, who essentially produces, uh, produces the result, follows best practice, follows actuarial guidance, complies with regulations. The other role is in the risk area. Lots of actuaries becoming CROs um, these days. And I think in this area in particular, um, looking at models beyond actuarial, uh, looking at the data science teams that we now find in many short-term insurers, um, and even some of the BI and, and, and analytics teams, um, there are models everywhere uh, in, in, in these areas and more. And as the CRO, as the risk professional, Managing the enterprise-wide model, enterprise model risk um, now becomes an important thing to do and something and a responsibility that needs to be discharged carefully. So the roles are different, um, but wherever you sit, um, the feature of our world is that managing the model risk is, is not just about uh, making sure that the right things get done. I always use an analogy uh, around actuarial work. And when handing in a report, I always tell my team, picture your day in court. Will you be able to defend yourself? Will you be able to essentially put to bed the fact that you've discharged your responsibilities uh, responsibly and, and clearly? And given the consequences that, that some of these things can have, I think this really begs the question, and, and this really leads us to think about a formalized approach uh, for managing model risk. Now, the intention is not really to suggest that we all need to go and, and build internal model application standard, uh, model governance and model risk management uh, uh, frameworks. But I think becoming more aware of what the consequences are, the, the, the risk exposures, um, and borrowing from many of these essentially advanced and, and well-developed frameworks where it makes sense and in a proportional way is what's needed in order to manage, manage model risk responsibly and essentially prove that you can discharge your, responsi your responsibilities in, in the correct way. And so today what we're going to cover uh, for you is a framework for managing model risk. And we'll, we'll talk through some examples, uh, one from Europe and one from South Africa, um, around an extreme sense of, of model risk management and an extreme framework. 
And hopefully it'll give you uh, some food for thought, uh, and you'll be able to take back something useful that you can implement um, in order to make uh, your organization and essentially the short-term insurance industry a little bit more resilient uh, than it is right now. So I'm going to hand over to Adelia. I'm going to skip over the slide, Adelia. I think I've talked to, spoken to that. Hi, everyone. Ooh, can you hear me? So Kavi already spoke about Knights Capital, and we have a couple of examples here as well just to give an idea of the impact that model risk events have had in the industry, maybe not just in the insurance industry, but in the financial industry in general. And we split it up into three parts, regulatory fines. So actually quite recently, Partnery was fined for lack of model governance around their solvency capital requirement calculations, 1.5 million euro, so quite sizable. We mentioned a couple of other operational losses. Many of them are due to hedging programs or mispriced options, things like this, quite um, investment bank focused. And then the last one we mentioned is systemic risk and bailouts. So for example, the 2007 to 2012 financial crisis, one could say over-reliance on some simplified assumptions and models were actually in a way the driver for the crisis and led to obviously huge amounts of bailout. Um, as well as long-term capital management. I don't know who of you did the ERM module of the actuarial qualification, but I think that was also one of the case studies. So this is just a couple of examples to give you an idea that this is really a very real risk that needs to be managed. So now that Kavi has told you quite a few interesting stories, I'm going to bring us back to basics and deal with the boring part. So what is a model? Um, no, I mean, we're all actuaries, so this is bit of a trivial question, one could say. We have data, we process that to get some inputs, which we put into a method or an approach to derive outputs, and this is used in decision-making or in reporting. Okay, everyone knows that. The question is, when you define within your model risk framework what a model is, it's very important to decide where does the model begin and where does it end, and to define this quite clearly. So the first question is, does it include the processes you have to come from your data to the inputs you use in your model or your assumptions you make? Does it um, only relate to the quantitative approaches you use to derive outputs from the inputs? Does it have to take into account how the outputs are actually used? And do you also have to take into account the processes which take the outputs into business information which are then actually used for decisions or are actually reported? Now, we all know models include high level of expert judgment, some form of quantitative method, system, or approach. It um, basically relies on data or assumptions from the data, and there's a lot of uncertainty around it given that it's a simplified version of reality. Okay, nothing new. Now, the thing is when you implement a model risk framework, the first thing you need to do is define what is a model. And so you can start with input to output, but actually, if you think about the risk inherent in data and processing data, this is also quite a big one, as well as how do you actually make the decision? How do you present the output of model? So I'm not going to tell you how to define it, but I would give two pointers on this. When you define what a model is in the framework of model risk management, I think it's quite important to rather be inclusive than exclusive, simply because if you exclude, for example, data, or how it is reported in the end, the output, you might really miss one of the key risks that are inherent in model risk. 
And the second thing is there are other ways to limit the scope and to focus on the areas which are important. And that is basically through something we will come to just now, which is um, to tier your models and to have very risk-based requirements based on the tiering of the models. And also what models are in scope in the first place. So that brings me to the next point. What exactly are we trying to manage? Now, I've put a very generic definition of model risk. It's my own. Um, so feel free to have your own definition. But if I had to define it, I would say adverse consequences. This could mean financial consequences, but it could also mean reputational consequences. It could also mean bad business decisions. So it's quite broad. Due to incorrect or inaccurate, or let's say not adequately accurate models, due to output being misused or misunderstood. And I want to link actually what the objectives of, let's say, a model risk management framework could be to what that implies in terms of the scope that you have to include in your framework. So let's start with the most obvious one, avoiding misstatements in financial reporting and public disclosure. Um, now, of course, this is something one might want to avoid, to avoid regulatory fines or potential reputational damage. And in this case, the implication would be that the models used in regulatory and financial reporting would be included. So basically, your liability valuation models, asset valuation models, regulatory capital models, capital projection models, all these things which probably are already being run by actuaries and so potentially already also fall within either the chief risk officer or the chief um, actuaries domain. And Therefore, they are potentially already relatively well-governed, so not too surprising. Whether it might be formal or not formal, I mean, if it's within the domain of the person who's responsible, it's quite easy to enforce requirements even if it's not formalized. So that's obviously, I think, the one everyone thinks about, thinks about first. The next one I want to mention, and this is now taking it a bit further, is avoiding wrong business decisions and also making the right business decisions and gaining a competitive advantage. Now, what do I mean with this? Um, it basically relates back to <clears throat> when I make decisions, do I use the right, the right information to make such decisions? And just think for a moment about big strategic business decisions, for example, M&As. What about the models that we use in M&As? Are they governed adequately? And what are the consequences when a company invests money in, in a specific region or so um, based on models used in M&A which were completely wrong. They could suffer severe losses for many years. They might have to dispose of the company without getting back what they put in. And so I think this one is one which one often forgets about. Also, for example, strategic and tactical asset allocation. Who governs those models and what implications do they have? I think um, it depends on the objectives, of course, about the risk appetite that a company has in terms of what they want to govern and model risk. But this one, I think, is one which is often forgotten simply because there's not always a direct link back to the models. When we talk about misstatements in financial reporting or about trading losses, which are based on models, it's clear, well, the model was at fault. But if we talk about an M&A that went wrong, often it's seen as a strategic risk that occurred. But what if the decision was actually made on the output of a model? Is it then not model risk? So the next one I want to talk about is operating losses. So we had a lot of examples about that. I would say, yes, maybe Knight's Capital is one example of that. Huge operating losses. 
And this would basically imply, if your appetite is to mitigate this risk, that you need to include models, financial and um, commercial models like pricing, hedging. Um, these need to be included in your framework. But also it could be other operations. For example, remuneration models. I remember when I was still in Europe, I developed a, a stochastic model for share-based bonus payments for management, which, um, I mean, I was relatively junior at the time. Um, it was very important information for these directors, what they're going to get, and it was completely ungoverned. So had I made a mistake, could have been quite a big financial impact for them. And I think there are many cases like that of, for models which fall outside of the actual domain, but actually could have material impacts if they're not governed adequately. And the last thing I want to mention, and then I'm going to pass on back to Kavi, this relates to the example again, is um, what about the software which executes business decisions based on certain algorithms which go wrong? I don't know, Kavi has already said a lot about Nitex Capital. Let's see. Do you have something more to add? Because it just brings it back to Sure. Um, so, so what... what I didn't cover what actually went wrong at Knight's Capital. Um, and, and so it was a trading algorithm that malfunctioned. But if you delve a little bit deeper, um, what actually happened was the IT team was looking to uh, essentially go live with a new system um, and, and a new algorithm in the retail market. Um, and, the, and the correct algorithm had been developed and it, and it had been um, well tested but they committed the wrong algorithm into the production environment. And uh, in fact, it was an algorithm that they had retired almost 10 years ago um, uh, called SuperPeg. And SuperPeg essentially was deployed into the production environment um, and caused all of the losses that, that were seen at, at, at Knight's Capital. Um, and the team who was trying to fix the mess and switch the algorithm off kept getting this m message on the screen which said uh, super peg flag true and no one knew what super peg was because it was retired 10 years ago and everyone who had worked on it since then had left. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting case study um, not only because I think it's a good example of where models go wrong um, but it's also a good example of where the broader model environment has gone wrong. Um, and in this case, not necessarily that the algorithm malfunctioned, although that could just as easily have been the root cause here. Um, but in this case, a, a failure of the governance um, and the IT that was sitting um, around that model. Um, and it's an interesting uh, question then, uh, to, to, to think about when considering all the risks related to models. In, in where does the model stop? And where does the IT risk begin? Um, and is it even worth delineating those two? Um, or should you just um, rather focus on the consequences and the, and the impacts of, of, of when things go wrong? So back to boring part. Sorry, Kavi is the one who gives some color to our presentation with his interesting stories. I've been, I was in Germany too long, so Germans are extremely practical driven, you know, just tell me what to do. So <laughs> this is where I am now. Um, so how can we manage model risk? Now I've um, set out two parts of how we can do it. 
first part is to set up the framework, and the second part is to implement the framework. And of course, there will be some interplay between the two as, as one actually does it in practice, but just to give you an idea. So, develop a model risk policy. In this policy, you need to define what is a model. Like I mentioned, first point, seems trivial, not so trivial as one might think. Second point is, it should include the, um, the models that need to be covered by the policy. So basically, depending on your objectives, as I mentioned before, you would scope in, let's say, only actuarial evaluation models, for example, and risk capital models, and that's it. Or you might say, we want to go broader and include some other ones. Um, then you'd also assign some roles and responsibilities in the policy. The next point is define a model inventory structure. That sounds super boring, but actually when we recently spoke to the head of the independent validation unit of a, well, shall I just say it, of Allianz, <laughs> um, that's the company I worked for previously, so a lot of the examples will come from that. He, he told us, so Allianz is a huge, huge company. They basically run a full internal model with about 70 entities worldwide reporting into that. So you can imagine, it's quite complex. But when we asked him if you could go back in time, what would he have done differently? He said, I would focus on getting my model inventory structure right from the beginning. So keep that in mind. So the inventory structure, of course initially, it will just help you to get an overview of, your, of actually where there are models and what they are being used for and how important they are. So some characteristics that would be included is Who's the model owner? What's the purpose? What are the inputs? What are the outputs? And how material are the outputs? So that's the basics, right? Now, the other thing you'd want to do in the model inventory is actually get an idea of the level of controls, documentation, and validation that currently exists. So you'd maybe include attributes like when was it last validated? What kind of documentation exists? Was it independent validation or peer review? Something like that. And then you'd also want to include depending on your future requirements, which is the next step we're going to get to, um, some characteristics which could indicate how compliant these models are in terms of the requirements you've specified. So based on these characteristics you have, you can develop a tiering concept. Now, this is not own fund tiering. I don't know why the word tiering is used, but it's basically just a way to say what is more important and what is less important. So you can, for example, establish criteria for example, what is it used? Is it used in financial reporting? Is it used in business decisions? How material is the model? Um, that's the most common ones. I would potentially add something like what level of expert judgment is involved, how complex it is. To tier your model, say from tier one, which is the most important, to tier three or tier five, depending on how granular you want to make your requirements. Um, to determine which models are the most important you want to focus on and which are the least important, which even if you're aware of them, you might not be so concerned about them. The next step is specify requirements. And now, as Kavi mentioned before, of course, these examples we've seen in practice, they relate to huge companies with huge internal models, huge complexity. And of course, this is not appropriate for, for a small company or for a company which, has, which is much closer to the models. So the idea with the tiering, um, tiering criteria and the specifying requirements based on that is to make it really practical and pragmatic. So, specifying requirements, we mean this in terms of control requirements, validation or review requirements, as well as documentation. And for these ones, you can basically do it per tier and say, for tier one models, we're going to be very strict. We want to know exactly what's going on there. We want to have good documentation, a high level of controls, independent validation. And for tier four or five models, well, actually, 
if you just you know, document your assumptions, that's fine, for example. So it can be set up in a way which makes most sense for your own company. Um, also, model risk quantification. I don't know, do we have this question to poll? So we have also had a bit of a debate internally about this, whether you should quantify model risk. And so I would ask you whether you think we should quantify model risk, yes or not, if you believe it's something value added. Maybe we, we don't, okay, put of hands. Who thinks we should quantify model risk? Okay, maybe one third at most. <laughs> um, so my personal view is, um, but this is just my personal view. There are other colleagues who are very enthusiastic about it. Um, of course, if you want to link it back to a risk appetite and link it back to action, it's nice to quantify it and say, okay, this is a reason why we need to do something. If we have this exposure, we need to actually implement something to fix it, right? So it's sometimes a bit the argument to get the support from, from above. Um, my personal view is I would rather spend more time on managing it than on quantifying it, but that's just me. I'm, like I say, maybe not too German in my way of thinking. So specifying requirements, controls. Do you want controls on the data? Do you need controls on the, on the changes, if you make changes in the model? What level of review do you need when you change um, update assumptions, for example? Does the independent validator, does it have to be independent? Can it be a reviewer? Can it be someone from the same team? Who needs to sign off on the model? First time when it's changed, um, how often does it have to be validated? Things like that. So you can there kind of go very specific depending on the model tier and to what's required. And the last point, okay, consult affected stakeholders. Always good to involve the people who are going to be affected by it and make sure they're on board because they know best maybe what makes sense for their own models. Implementing the framework. So formalize the model policy. And this is maybe very important specifically if the scope of it is broader than just the actuarial domain. Simply because... If you want to include, for example, models in HR, you don't have the mandate to do that unless you have it actually formalized and signed off by the board. Second point is set up a coordination role function. Now, it's shocking how much work running such a framework can be depending on how much requirements one adds to this or how much focus wants to put on that. Um, I think there are people who can make it a full-time job of maybe a team of 10 and other ones can do it on the side maybe one person spending 10% of their time on it. So it really depends on the complexity of your organization and the amount of work you want to actually put into it. Take stock and assign tiering. So actually, there's a bit of a, I would say, loop here. Normally, how one would do it in practice is develop the policy, define the scope, define a structure for the model inventory, go out, figure out where you have all your models, and so this is not kind of the take stock part. Then one would come back and say, okay, based on the fact that we have 500,000 models, we only want to have 10,000 tier one models, for example. So we cannot deal with more than that, and we're gonna base our requirements based on the amount of models that are actually in the scope, because one has to be a little bit reasonable about this. You cannot have too many in scope of very stringent requirements. And the last one is just closing the material gap. So once one has identified, okay, these are our tier one models, we know what we want, we want to do with them, um, maybe some of them are already there, in terms of the requirements, they've already met it. Others might be quite far, so it would be important to once again just take a risk-based approach and make sure you focus on the big ones first. Make sure you get clarity and get the controls there that's required. So I would say the main message is get the mandate, gain clarity about your exposure, and make sure that you only have adequate proportionality-based requirements implemented. Now, okay, this is again boring, I'm sorry. <laughs> Kavi told me I should make it a bit interesting, more interesting, but um, it's a challenge for me. So 
I'm not going to talk a lot about all of these points. This is just an idea, again, about how the framework can be set up. But maybe um, just a few things. So on the control side, model updates versus model changes. Seems trivial, but I'm not a short-term actuary, just by the way. I would classify myself as a risk actuary with a life background. But, um, but I did work a lot with my colleagues previously who were implementing these things on short-term models. And there specifically, my impression was that the distinction between what's a model update and what's a model change is very important. Because a model update, you don't want to be stuck with a stringent process of sign-off and validation and this and that, um, just when you have something which you update quite frequently. On the other hand, if there's something which is important, you need to make sure that it's defined as a model change. So actually the definition of these kind of changes are updates and these kind of changes are classified as model change and therefore go through a different process quite important to make that quite clear. Um, other thing I want to talk about was types of validation. So this is now the fourth bullet under the middle column. Um, initial validation. So most models will probably have undergone an initial validation where somebody looked at how it was built and made sure that it was fine. And after that, maybe they never went through any further validations and everyone's just looking at the movements. Okay, this is quite common in life. Not sure if it's the same in, in, in short term, potentially. But um, Model change validation. So like I mentioned, once you know what's the definition of a change or an update, it's important to make sure that these model changes are actually looked at properly. And then regular and ad hoc validation. So the purpose of these are actually more to make sure that the model is still appropriate for its use. So you could say maybe the environment is quite volatile and so you need regular validations annually, or maybe the environment is quite stable and so you only need it every three or five years. On the other hand, you might also have ad hoc triggers. So if something significant happens in the market, which might, make, might mean that your method is not appropriate anymore, or you need to change something structurally in your model, you might have to do that. So you can define some triggers um, just to give an idea or to help people think about that when these things occur, that they might need, um, they might need new validation. Um, documentation is a bit boring, but expert judgment is maybe one which um, is quite important. I don't know. I think it's, a, it's a, quite a common requirement for internal model um, entities, which I guess it's not so relevant here, but actually documenting expert judgment, I think, is something which is quite useful in hindsight. So I would think that is something um, one should not forget about. So now we're going to talk about some practical approaches which we've seen implemented, and I'll hand over to Kavi for South African View. Thanks, Adelia. I'll try and keep, keep it quick. Um, so, over, over the last seven years, um, I've been involved in three uh, attempted IMAP applications, uh, should we call them that, um, and I've obviously seen, uh, you know, through that what uh, certainly the South African regulator, which is aligned to what most regulators around the world uh, are demanding, from essentially one of the most stringent model governance processes in uh, the insurance regulatory frameworks. Um, and, and IMAP is obviously a very, very over-engineered um, process, certainly when you look at it from the outside. Um, and most of the effort, I would say, apart from building the model, comes from all of the validation and governance that needs to sit around it as well as all of the documentation that needs to be written up um, in order to uh, get through the process, um, apart from the process being lengthy itself. But there are some aspects of it which I think are quite 
useful and interesting um, when it comes to modeling, uh, to, to managing model risk. The, one is, the first one is around expert judgment. Uh, so a huge focus on expert judgment. And uh, the, the, the regulators generally require um, expert judgment to be extensively documented, to be documented in such a way that they can be, it can be falsifiable. So in other words, an, a, a second actuary can challenge the way in which expert judgment has been applied in any model um, and uh, in, in that way falsify it. In, in, and and um, that obviously gives a much, much higher level uh, or, or, or higher um, requirement in terms of uh, justifying assumptions. In practice, it doesn't play out as neatly as all of that um, because you can imagine uh, a lot of things are very, very subjective and, and it's very difficult to even um, put down what uh, you're feeling around it, your, your expert judgment, let alone a logical train of thought. But I think the, the emphasis on that and the, and, and the requirement to delve inside the expert's mind um, is quite a, a useful um, aspect of, of the framework. Model change management gets a huge amount of focus. It's an extremely formalized process um, with every change being carefully documented, carefully signed off, um, and, and major changes actually being re-approved by the regulator. Um, and, I th and I think this is something, certainly when I look at some validation and pricing models in the industry, um, that, that could use a, a step up or two. Um, the use test. Uh, I think you know when it comes to models which are which are used for multiple uses, uh, th that in, in inherently gives a, a greater sense of comfort uh, because you have different stakeholder groups with different interests essentially overseeing um, what, what what the the results of the model. And lastly, I think you know the the formalized control environment. Um, so the regulators really require an extremely formal environment um, around the model. Uh, and all the controls to be well documented, to be tested regularly, um, and the, the, there's a big role for internal audit in, in, in all of that. Um, and once again, just, just adds an, an extra degree of, uh, of rigor to the, to the model control environment. Um, I think th this is obviously one that's, that's very onerous, but uh, for models that are extremely uh, pertinent to the organization and, and extremely critical, uh, something that, that should, should be paid careful attention to. I think in, in modern validation um, environments, this is already the case, um, but it can definitely be extended uh, beyond that. Okay, so as I mentioned, the example I have is extremely complex and probably much of it is not relevant to you, so I'm going to focus on one point which I think might be relevant. And that is, um, so what I've seen is how this specific company set it up was basically to develop something like a model testing and validation program. And this model testing validation program um, assigned minimum checks, basically, that the model owner who's running the model had to do either every time it was calculated or every time assumptions were updated. And similarly, for the one who's validating the model, they gave like a minimum amount of checks. And this was de developed for each risk model as well as technical provision models. So how they set it up was that the burden was really very much on the model owner to do a lot of testing 
and a lot of documentation of the testing. And the purpose of that was that when the validators came in, they did not spend a lot of time running their own parallel tests. They relied a lot on the things which the model owners had already done. In this way, this company ended up keeping their validation units quite slim. So I think it's six to eight full-time staff on group level. And within each company, they have one or two people looking at that. And they basically play the role mainly of making sure that everyone is conducting the validations as required, documentation standards are up to date, everyone understands the requirements in, in the right context, and um, they save a lot of money this way by basically insourcing a lot of the validation work by telling the model owners, you need to do this, this, and this, and this test every time you run the model or every time you update the assumptions. And the, review, the validators just look at that. So I think that was quite a, obviously it has pros and cons, but it was quite an interesting way to set it up and to basically insource a lot of that knowledge and make sure that you don't spend too much budget on external consultants to do validation. So I think we have one last slide. Okay. So what I wanted to take a look at to, to close was just where things are going um, when it comes to essentially the modeling space and some of the consequences for um, managing model risk then. Um, I mean, some of the trends that, that certainly I see right now are uh, a change in the regulatory environment, essentially a change in the regulator, um, which probably is going to bring much, stringent, much more stringent expectations and much higher expectations around model risk management practices in insurance companies, certainly when it comes to regulatory um, uh, capital models. Um, increase, increasing complexity of models, I think I spoke about this in the beginning, um, uh, around, but in, in this case, regulatory requirements, but I think in general, um, we now have a standard formula which is extremely complicated. Um, Clive once again spoke about uh, huge numbers of spreadsheets of extremely large size uh, being used in order to calculate uh, these things and, and to control them, especially in a spreadsheet environment, very, very tricky. Increased focus on data and analytics, um, obviously complex machine learning models, uh, models of, of much, much different uh, types. So things like artificial intelligence and deep neural networks, which are not easily, um, not easily validated, not easily understood in terms of what's happening inside. Um, increased innovation. Uh, so obviously increased innovation brings, once again, different kinds of models, but I would argue also a need to be much more agile. So a need for an organization to change a lot more quickly, um, for models to be changed quite quickly as a result of that, and essentially the model risk environment to keep up with that. Um, I think I've covered the automation through the Knights Capital example, and so I'll end by, by closing and, and telling you what happened as a consequence of Knights Capital. Um, so I happen to be involved uh, with uh, one of the algorithmic trading divisions um, of a local bank uh, right around the time that, that, uh, that the Knights Capital um, incident happened. And it had a ripple effect throughout the algorithmic trading world. Um, we saw a huge number of uh, audits being done on algorithmic trading environments. Um, and um, everyone from internal audit to risk management to compliance um, to every other kind of assurance provider you could think of was immediately all over this environment to uh, 
essentially um, figure out and, and, and provide assurance that, that, that a similar incident wouldn't happen. But the most interesting consequence for me was essentially what happened in, with the risk environment. And the risk team effectively put in a algorithmic trading risk modeler. Um, and that person's job was essentially to build second line algorithms, um, which would, in a live environment, oversee the first line algorithms um, and prevent them from stepping outside of, of, of certain boundaries, shut them down when needed. Um, and obviously a big challenge in that environment was keeping up with the speed, because algorithmic trading depends in a very big way on nanoseconds. And, and the speed of execution matters to a very large degree. And so a big challenge was effectively creating automated risk management that was as fast um, as the business that it was uh, designed to manage um, and to protect from, from a risk perspective. So I'll leave you with that thought, uh, and thank you with your time. Uh, I'm worried about time. We're, we're, quite, we're quite far over, okay. The first one. Validation of external models is, is nearly impossible. Do we just accept these models? How do we quantify and manage model risk here? Um, so yes, I, I think uh, perhaps just a practical uh, example. So this was a big challenge uh, during a couple of the IMAP processes I was involved with. Um, and in, in, in these cases, catastrophe models especially. Uh, it's something that we struggled to uh, look at um, for several years, mostly also because uh, there's, uh, cat modeling skills are quite uh, specialized and companies do not have them uh, in-house uh, in, in abundance, so there was no real way of validating that external model. Essentially how it played out was the model provider uh, was asked to provide an independent validation on their own model and they commissioned an internal team within their business to validate that, cat that catastrophe model and provide an independent validation report. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys.